Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an incredible episode to share with you. Uh, I just had a conversation with a gentleman named Dr. Miles Neal. Uh, he is a contemplative psychotherapist, an international speaker, and an author of a book called Gradual Awakening with a subtitle of The Tibetan Buddhist Path of Becoming Fully Human. Uh, we talked a lot in this conversation about uh, essentially the psychological condition of people today, as well as how to treat uh, that condition, including you know how to treat the traumas that build up over the course of someone's life, and uh, also a lot about the work that he does in exposing people to what he calls ancient wisdom by doing a series of uh, he teaches courses on that information as well as does full-blown pilgrimages to uh, ancient sites. I really appreciate the work that Dr. Miles Niels is doing, and I really hope that uh, you check out his information, check out his website, and uh, see what he's up to. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Miles Neal. Hey, Miles, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show. And Patrick, pleasure to meet with you and looking forward to seeing where a very organic and authentic conversation can take us. Absolutely. So for the listeners out there who maybe are unfamiliar with your work uh, up until this point, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself, a little bio about yourself and what you have been working on? Sure. I'm a uh, 44-year-old uh, psychologist based in New York City. My training has um, been integrative in nature, which means I have done a long stint of uh, academic training in traditional Western psychology and neuroscience and trauma research. But I have, since the uh, onset of my education, also fused that and integrated that with the uh, sacred wisdom culture of Tibet and looking cl very closely at Buddhist philosophy, uh, meditation practices, rituals, and uh, consciousness. Uh, and so uh, my, my current offerings and what I do, I have a, basically a three-pronged a three approach to the kinds of work that I do. I, I call it an ecosystem, essentially. I offer one-on-one -on -one counseling that is based on uh, these, this fusion and I also offer a very uh, substantial two-year program that trains people in these arts and sciences so that they feel empowered uh, with the latest neuroscience, but also a very ancient wisdom so that they can really take responsibility for their own, their own life and mind. And then the third offering that I combine these two others with is pilgrimage, which is the taking of uh, people to sacred wisdom sites uh, scattered around Buddhist Asia so that they can have an actual experience of the traditional wisdom, an immersion, if you will. So it's personal, personal therapy or counseling, uh, group uh, education, and uh, pilgrimage are my, three, are my three offerings. And I'm also, in the midst of all this, a, a young father of two boys, and that's 
a very humbling experience, uh, as many people with, with, with kids know that, uh, they are very, uh, quick to show all of your limitations and, uh, and, and force you in a position to really be accountable to the things that you say that you're doing. <laughs> so I say that with all humility. That's incredible. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, and I'd love to touch on each one of those points as we go here. Uh, before that, though, I'd like to hear just from your perspective, how do you define uh, ancient wisdom? A sacred wisdom is um, sacred wisdom is are the indigenous and traditional uh, perspectives and practices that have withstood thousands of years of practice on this planet in, in indigenous cultures. Each and every one of them has has their own sacred wisdom perspective. And what, what usually is the hallmark, despite great geographical differences between them, is that they understand uh, human nature to be eternal and uh, very precious. And they also understand that the way that we live together creates um, consequentiality. And so the way that we live together and how we act and behave amongst each other and the planet has a kind of consequence. So we should be good stewards and we should be very responsible and very sensitive to our thoughts and our speech and our action. And so the, the combination of these two is ubiquitous to all cultures prior to about 400 or 350 years ago on the planet where we take a turn towards modernity and take a turn uh, to the primacy of scientific reductionism and materialism. Every wisdom culture on the planet, Christian included, all the monotheistic traditions, but even the um, pagan religions of, let's say, Greece, for example, but then into East Asia and, and South in the South Indian subcontinent, you have a variety of uh, theistic or religious or spiritual points of view in which people saw that they were in a way very divine and uh, rever were, re were reverent towards the realms of the sacred, which they could not see with their five senses. And, and as a result of that sacredness, they lived a certain way very much more harmoniously with nature and with them uh, amongst themselves and had much greater uh, meaning and purpose. And it is only in my estimation 350 years ago where we, wake, where we take a massive turn or pendulum swing in Europe, Western Europe, particularly with the, um, with the age of reason, where we uh, sort of discredit uh, the, the church and its hypocrisy and its burning of the people at, at the stake and its crusades and its uh, religious intolerance and all the rest of it had just become way too much and was in a way hypocritical. And we have this massive explosion of individualism and science and, ration, and reason and rationale, which I think we are now the benefactors of because we have great medicine and great technology and can send a man to the, to the moon and can create the internet. Um, but we are also at the very same time experiencing on the planet, and I'm sure the listeners are very familiar with this, we are also seeing a massive pandemic or what, called, or what, are, of what are called the diseases of civilization, which mean we are seeing incidents, un, unprecedented incidences of heart disease and cancer and obesity, and now more prevalently depression and anxiety and ADHD. And we are seeing unprecedented in history, economic divide and geopolitical strife and uh, environmental degradation. And so in my estimation, all of these seemingly disparate features across the planet, these symptoms 
can be traced to a much more fundamental perceptual or paradigm outlook problem. In other words, we haven't, in a way, we've gained the benefits of modern science and mastered the material world, but we have forgotten something very, very sacred about what it means to be a human being on the planet because we've exclusively focused our mind on what is material and what can be seen with the senses, and we have disenfranchised or unmoored ourselves from the sacred and the spiritual. And so if we look now, we are, as Western culture begins to uh, uh, export our modern consumeristic and industrialized tendencies based on materialism and nihilism, we see the last remaining bastions of sacred wisdom cultures beginning to hang on life support, whether they be the, uh, the uh, uh, First Nations people of, the, of North America and the, or, or, or the indigenous cultures of the Amazon, or the sacred wisdom cultures of the yoga traditions or the Buddhist traditions in the high Himalayas, uh, or the Aboriginal traditions of Australia or in East Asia, you see these are just holding on, they're hanging on, on life support as consumerism barrels down at them and uh, threatens to whitewash and, and wipe them out. And so I think it's incredibly important that we stand, as we stand on a precipice right now of self-imposed mass extinction as a result of our crazy idolatries and perspectives, uh, that we take heed from wisdom cultures before they are extinct because in them they hold the promise of how we can continue to live together in harmony on this planet. Uh, I'm glad you said all that. It's a lot of uh, really setting the stage for an interesting time that we live in right now. Uh, and I'm, I like the way that you define a lot of these terms to make it easy to understand for people. Uh, one thing that I've noticed about the time period we live in now, which is kind of strange, is people worship, uh, they almost worship science as a religion. Uh, and our modern day religions and religious institutions are so far removed from, uh, maybe you call it that sacred wisdom that uh, you've described from other groups of people around the earth that uh, people are sort of deprived in a, in a way that they don't, uh, they don't have, they're, they're lacking the meaning and uh, lacking meaning in their life. And, and exactly like you described, they're seeing it reflected in all sorts of modern diseases and modern ailments that uh, probably wouldn't exist if we were more in touch with that, uh, that sacred wisdom and, and place more value on humanity. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I do think that there's a distinction between the scientific method and scientism. Uh, scientism is what you're indicating, which is as a, as a kind of cultural phenomenon, our scientific um, structures have become in their way deified. They have become theistic in their orientation. They have replaced religion of old. We have replaced religion of old and the priestly caste with scientism as a religion, as a dogma to believe in and have replaced the priestly caste with the scientific or the, the well-educated. And I think that the problem is, is that the scientific method is particularly skillful and useful art. When, when people understand that the scientific uh, methodology of looking at things with objectivity, but then also requiring other people to look at the very same phenomenon with objectivity and then creating a database of, of data points uh, and, then, and then trying to really get at the heart of the matter, but at, at all the same time without trying to prove anything, but just to see what's really there and then be open-minded to change one's orientation based on the data. I think that is a very useful 
methodology. Now, what happens or what can tend to happen because of the hubris and the blind spot of the human mind is that people can then present them, present their data as a kind of fixed rigid dogma. And I think the main important thing for listeners is that we are each responsible for being our own scientist. We are each responsible for be, being very critical and open-minded and looking at the data and not just uh, hook, line, and sinker buying whatever's out there. Because if we look at science and look at data across the board, it can be manipulated. So, you know, for example, the tobacco industry in the 80s and 90s just put out about a bunch of data saying that their, that their, that their products weren't toxic and didn't cause cancer. And people believed it. And, and we're doing the same thing now with the climate science. So you can always have kind of this utility of using data to serve your own surreptitious aims. And, and, but the problem really lies in the consumer, that if we give up our own good sense and we give up scrutiny and we give up our own critical inquiry, then we just do what people, the uneducated masses in the early part of the Christian church would do, which is to give up our power to religious authority and then make ourselves susceptible to manipulation and abuse. And so I think they're separating scientific method from scientific dogmatism or scientism, and then going straight to the point which we all have to be informed consumers and the responsibility to bear is on each of us to look critically, not only at objective phenomenon, but also our own minds, and come away with our own conclusions and have earnest discussions and candid discussions with as many people trying to understand what the hell is really going on. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I like the way you describe the scientific method there too, uh, compared to scientism, uh, where the method works and people need to be open and understanding and receptive to new information. But what's interesting right now, uh, or at least one common thing that I notice is that uh, as people interpret science, they're only willing to interpret the things that, you know, can be proven. Uh, and there's essentially a lot of doubt about things that cannot be proven. Whereas, uh, you know, like you just look like nobody really understands humanity, what we're doing here, the, the nature of the reality around us, you know, we can only measure those things as, you know, so far. Uh, mm. And just because you can't measure it doesn't mean that it's not real. It's so is, true. Yeah, it's sort of an it's idea so, that so true. yeah, so, a lot of people are adverse to right now. Well, I think, I mean, it's a great point what you're bringing up, Patrick, because in a way what we are heading into, a, a, we're heading into a new frontier where we recognize, we are hopefully beginning to recognize the limits of any one particular strategy or any one particular perspective or any one particular paradigm. And so I'm not against science. And some people may, because I'm an impassioned person coming from a Buddhist perspective and, and championing the, 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 um, the points of view of indigenous sacred wisdom cultures, I'm still a psychologist trained in the academic tradition. And so I still recognize the vitality and the importance of a scientific point of view. And so what you're suggesting is that we have to recognize the limits of science and then therefore use science where science is useful. So science is an incredibly powerful uh, perspective when it comes to the observable or, the, or, or material phenomenon. It's incredibly powerful because it uses the five senses, it goes down into the subatomic particles, from there it goes quantum, it, it is based on quantifiable, 
it is based on quantities, it is based on known entities. And for all of that, we can control matter and we can control energies and we can build technologies and we can um, you know, dive into the mechanisms of cancer production and all the rest of it, which is incredibly powerful. But for those things in life that are not quantifiable, if we hold only or exclusively to the scientific perspective, we are going to find ourselves very, very limited with a ceiling effect and, and very narrow-minded, which, which is why I think we have found ourselves at this great precipice of we have opened up a great vortex and we are on, the, on a cusp of really um, doing some major damage to ourselves and others because we have, hold too, we have adhered too strictly and too dogmatically to one perspective. And so what I'm not saying is taking a leap back and dispensing with science and going back 300 or 400 years to aboriginal philosophies or sacred cultures. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is for each domain, it may have its utility. So for the spiritual domain, let's open our minds back to sacred wisdom cultures and what they had to teach us for the non-material and for spirit and for material realm. Let's, let's really clean up our scientism so that we get to the scientific method and bring to bear what impact it can possibly have on that domain. And so this is really what I call integrative work, taking the best from various disciplines, knowing them full well, studying them earnestly and deeply, but then beginning to fuse them so that you have a bigger picture than the sum of its parts. Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're where we are located right now sort of on that precipice of the vortex as you described is uh it like i'm in an optimistic place whereas uh I, i'm i'm feeling like some of the worst is behind us with the past few decades uh have been you know explosive in the scientist scientific realm uh but very uh you know sort of closed off in the more you know in the ancient wisdom realm and the resurgence of you're seeing it with like psychedelics and psychedelic treatments and people going to Peru and doing ayahuasca and this sort of resurgence, not just uh, of people doing those things, but as them uh, penetrating into the mainstream is, is, you know, it's, it makes me feel like the pendulum is swinging back the other way in that we're sort of entering this period where people will be able to use the best of both uh, realms there to, to create, you know, a you know a healthier society overall yeah i mean i can i can agree with that sometimes i sometimes i don't have as optimistic a view it depends what you know what kind of what piece of the pie i'm being exposed to certainly i think some of the climate indications are that we are you know we are either past the tipping point or very close to a tipping point and then, then i don't see that the critical mass that will be needed to galvanize uh, a direct impact change to the climate, ha uh, the critical mass required, uh, we are probably far from it. And so that, 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 make, that sort of gives me a lot of pause to really, especially with two children who will inherit the planet, uh, you know, amongst the generations who will inherit the planet, I feel, I feel sometimes that, uh, uh, that I'm not sure if we're working earnestly or um, collaboratively enough, but then there are other indications that do, in fact, make me feel like even 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I was when I was coming up. Now I'm mentoring people at the age at, at the age of 20. I'm mentoring people who have a bigger, more broad perspective and more integrative perspective at 20 than I did. 
And so, yes, I can see the evolution and that is heartening. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I guess I, I kind of vacillate between both realities. And then in a way there are, there are people, you know, bigger, bigger names than me that, um, that are pointing to the fact that these, these realities are not mutually exclusive. Um, <clears throat> people like Pinker and a few others who are suggesting, you know, if you just look at, just look at where we are, there are actually less murders and less uh, brutalities and less um, crimes and less uh, economic uh, disparities than there ever were. If you just look at the hardcore data, he, he's very optimistic. And then there are other people I admire and respect that, that are looking at other pieces of data that are, you know, growing very, very concerned that the powers that be, such as the United Nations or, or, or presidencies of different countries are doing enough and or is the grassroots movement of a collective populace really doing enough or recognizing the urgency? So it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate time to say the least, very delicate. But then I think the real point is that we should never fall into despair because then we are um, rendered useless or helpless for the contribution that each of us can and should make. So I think the real, the real important message with all of this is that um, we can't wait for governments or institutions to, to make a difference. We each have, we are, this is a time, we're now entering a time where every individual has to make a contribution. This is something I have come to learn very, very personally and I'm very, very impassioned about. Like I work with 250 people in my program and I find myself being very inspired and uplifted by them. They are people that are a cross section of, um, of people from various disciplines. Some of them are therapists, some of them are artists, some of them are authors, some of them are into technology, some of them are just parents looking for their own self-improvement and enrichment. And in my program, what I have said after a year, we're about two, uh, halfway through a two-year program, which is a tremendous commitment. And so I think these are a very unique subsection of people. But nonetheless, halfway through the program, I have really seen people rise to the occasion of, of the message that I'm trying to amplify, which is we can't wait for gurus to do it. We can't wait for presidents to do it. We can't wait for institutions to do it. Every single person has to rise to the occasion of taking full responsibility for their actions and, and awakening to the fact that they have tremendous potentialities and then applying that in their sphere of influence. And I love that word sphere of influence because for example, Patrick, you have a particular sphere of influence with your podcast. You have a reach, for example, and you have a way about you that you have earned the trust and respect of your listeners that I do not. My reach is somewhere else and in a different domain. And, uh, but every podcast that I do and every person that I speak to, we are not but one or two degrees of separation from each of our prospective domains of influence to begin to connect in a vast tapestry or network. And so then I don't think people should feel disheartened because all they are really truly responsible for is awakening their mind and beginning to impact whoever it is that they're connected with, whether it be their, their children or their friends or their colleagues. That's, you don't have to change the world. We only have to change our particular sphere of influence and then begin to network, eat with each other for the benefit of, of our shared humanity and then begin to see that the network effect links the entire or blankets the entire planet. And I think that is much more an optimistic way to work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, it, it totally comes down to these individual people changing their minds and, and controlling their sphere of influence. Uh, and I think that's really the, the amazing thing about right now is that we're seeing, you know, with the use of, 
a lot of different uh, combinations of information to treat therapy and people's individual problems, uh, which, you know, relies on that Western or I mean, excuse me, relies on that sacred, you know, information and those sacred philosophies, uh, but are being sort of propagated using, you know, the modern tools using the internet, you know, people can connect with you on the internet uh, to fulfill these, uh, you know, deeper spiritual needs, which, uh, you know, it seems like a good culmination there and, and a good uh, combination of these two forces working together uh, to bring about a new, a new time period that we're entering into here. Yeah, I'm not, um, I, I agree. I'm not, I'm not an oppo opponent to uh, technologies. I, I think it's all about the mo yeah. motivation. How do you, how do you want to use it? I mean, I think that the internet can be, you know, um, a message, a terrorist uh, network can use the internet to its advantage. And, and so uh, the technology that's there, depending on how it uses, can, tend, can lead to absolutely devastating impact. And if we have a much more altruistic message that we try to amplify across platforms and across technology, then I think we can have a much wider and broader positive impact on the planet. So I think you know, it comes again down to uh, having a sense of purpose, having a clear intention, and then learning how to use technology, not only just for personal benefit, but for, for kind of global or societal impact uh, based on the in intentionality. So I think, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a, I mean, I, I love the fact that in my program now, which is only now emerging because I've only started a year ago, but I, I can sit in class and be connected live with people and I'm in New York city. So I can have people who are in Alaska and Portland and then all the way to Texas and then up to, uh, up to uh, Ontario, Canada, and then all the way over live. Now they will stay up a little later. Some of these people in Europe and then all the way to Sri Lanka and Hong Kong the next day coming in through live, all joining us for class and meditating together over the internet and then studying for two hours together and going through teachings and point by points of sacred texts that have been on the planet for some 600 years or a thousand years. And then all committing our intentionality to, to go and disperse from our little nod or pod or, or network and back, back into family, back into society, back into our careers and, and try to embody some of those principles. So I think that's a very powerful symbol, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Using the internet to do a collective meditation, that, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm very happy about, about that. I mean, even just four or five years ago, I wouldn't be able to even connect with half of those people. On the other hand, I think also there's something to be said about the loss of uh, human interactions live in person. I mean, I think that is something that the wisdom cultures would tell, tell us and remind us. And I, in fact, I was having a very frank, frank conversation with one of my teachers in the Tibetan tradition. And he said that there are particular teachings he won't give over the internet. He will only do them in person. And that he recommended that I meet with my students at least once a year in person. And he said, perfectly fine to do the rest over internet, but try to meet at least. And so what I think he's doing there is he's also alerting us to the fact that we have bodies and that those bodies in a, and that those bodies are comprised of energies and that being in the same room, nothing can really substitute being in a room with somebody and that we should always remember that and not, not disappear into another extreme where we become avatars to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, as sort of this trend continues, people start to identify more and more the value of that, uh, more the interpersonal connections of being together uh, in the same space.
Mm. I, I'm, I'm curious with, uh, uh, if you could tell me more about your work with, with, with trauma and understanding trauma and people and, uh, sort of the current state of, you know, well, we are, we, are, we are, we are, um, we are seeing a very huge explosion in uh, research on trauma right now. And I think it's, um, I think it's, it's opened up a new frontier that I think will be ex- enormously, enormously helpful, probably as in, as helpful and as revolutionary and if not more than the, uh, than the outset or the origins of psychology with Freud and Jung. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> I also have to just alert your audience to the fact that I don't, I'm not a traditional psychologist in the sense I don't receive just general patients. Nearly 99% of the people that I receive are people who are, know that I'm a Buddhist therapist and know, and know that I integrate both East and West. And so they are already practicing mindfulness or meditation or yoga practice uh, in some form, either very at the very beginning level or very advanced level. But across the board what i think is really remarkable is in in including my own life uh, because i have a long history of my own kind of trauma and uh, we should define trauma in different ways there is these sort of big t trauma big t traumas like when you have a massive car crash or you have sustained an incredible um one-time uh assault or abuse or for example rape or been in a in a war-torn situation and you've and you've been completely uh, fragmented your psychology or your state of mind or your psyche has been completely fragmented. Uh, but then there's small T trauma, which is only now becoming to be appreciated, which is uh, less obvious and less pronounced and small T trauma. Another word for it is called developmental trauma. And th- this is sustained more um, chronically with smaller little um, incidents that we take for granted or tend to minimize uh, to our own detriment. And these can include the fact that you may have been in a environment growing up where you're neither or one of your parents was not emotionally available. They may have been, uh, an, uh, you know, uh, under an addiction or under influence, or they may have been an alcoholic, or they may have themselves been abused, and then therefore they were emotionally shut down or stunted, and therefore not really emotionally available in the sense of being like a radio tuner or radio uh, radio wave, uh, antenna being available to your signal. They may have been shut down and so that breaks the kind of attunement or frequency or resonance circuitry between brains and especially during developmental years from the ages of uh, one to six or five it's incredibly crucial that a that a a little infant has as much presence and attunement uh, for the messages that are coming back and forth between parents because that's what operates as the rudder and sail for development and if there's a kind of interruption and it can have deep and long-lasting, but very subtle um, developmental uh, uh, arrests. And so you find people that uh, then, you know, sort of kind of grow like a half-cooked turkey and wind up in adulthood and they can't sustain relationships or they have terrible outbursts of anger or they can't trust people or they shut down their emotions and they live in their heads. And they, we have all these like little arrests in our development. But we would look back and go, no, nothing major happened. There were three square meals a day provided for me and my parents took me on vacation. And, you know, I went to school and nobody hit me or nobody beat me up. Um, but we, but we're, now, we're now experiencing a lot of very precise research that's showing that these little micro traumas have a cumulative effect 
and they can lead to ways of being in the world that lead to make us much more um, much more uh, predisposed to depression and anxiety and, uh, and, and impact our relationships in such a way that we can't really trust people. We can't process our emotions. And so we stuff our emotions and the emotions um, then get the best of us and they can lead to medical illnesses and medical um, uh, conditions such as fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue or IBS. And, and so we, we see this spectrum of small accumulative micro traumas that don't get processed that go into the body that then affect the body psychologically and then the buildup of that psychological impact can then lead to a kind of medical impact and so we are now beginning to trace that phenomenon and see that it's very important for even just the common person to have some education around trauma and then the tools to rehabilitate the trauma and so this is what my specialty is, is that people that have found their way to yoga or found their way to meditation or found their way to Buddhism or found their way to even more recently, as you mentioned, the ayahuasca traditions, they go to Peru and they have a sacred wisdom uh, ceremony with, uh, with the plant medicine. And then they will, they will need some follow-up and they'll find me. Even there, I find these people can be unknowingly to them using spiritual practices actually to get over or to sidestep actually dealing with the darker, more painful emotional wounds of their past. And so it's my job to alert them to the fact that they are undergoing what's called a spiritual bypass. They're using spirituality to circumvent um, damages, micro damages in their past. And that actually spirituality and therapy, their main purpose is to actually go deeper into the shadow, deeper into the unknown territories, deeper into the wound so that true healing can happen. Yes. And just to go, just to touch upon, you know, the way that you described the two traumas, I think is really great. The big T trauma, the major events and the little T trauma, which is sort of that collective, uh, that collective accrual of, of micro traumas throughout their lives, throughout mm -hmm. someone's life. And I would go so far as to say that that, you know, Nearly everybody in the modern world is experiencing uh, an unhealthy amount of uh, micro traumas that, that have developed into their lives unless they've done some sort of uh, specific treatment for that or they figured out how to how to navigate those traumas. And, Patrick, let me let me ask you, yeah. I, I agree with you now. Can I just press you to articulate sure. why why you think that that is? Why do you think that it's so prevalent? So, so my belief is that the world that I grew up in, the world that you grew up in, uh, has been, you know, spiritually devoid. You know, we haven't grown up in the, like, uh, I always compare things to the way our, you know, ancestors, you know, the hunter gatherers, the people who evolved the, the, you know, um, homo erectus for, you know, a million years evolved, which was to be in a tribal environment, to be in an environment where, uh, you know, you're very close with a group of people and uh, our modern world does not facilitate those kind of relationships. And so for nearly everybody growing up in like the atomic America or atomic family kind of America, uh, I think we've been missing a lot of the fundamental pieces of humanity that make people uh, mentally healthy. And so, and then you combine that with uh, some new 
you know, sort of the new war on our minds uh, and our focus, like social media, uh, advertisements, you know, consumerism, uh, you take all these things and you combine them together. And so people were raised in a sort of a unnatural environment, sort of uh, spiritually stale. And you combine, uh, you know, the different, you know, pressures on our minds and our, our identities and uh, all those things combined to create a situation where today, unlike ever before, you know, people are seeking help for anxiety and depression and, and a wide range of mental disorders that in all likelihood uh, are stemming from, you know, this common cause, this common issue or this common uh, circumstance where people were just simply raised in an environment that is unnatural. And uh, yeah, so that, that's why I think most people like the common state is uh, most people have too much accrued micro trauma. Yeah. So, I mean, I couldn't agree with you and it's very um, confirming to have never met you and to, and to hear you give that or provide that explanation and to, to hear just how congruent it is. It was basically the central thesis of my book two years ago, Gradual Awakening, published in 2018. One of the central theses of it is a conviction, almost word for word described how you described it. And so it's really um, confirming to hear you say that as a kind of more, you know, someone who really pays attention to these issues and tries to explore its origin and get a good handle on it. I would 100% agree with you that and it would, and then maybe I would add, it's not just the micro trauma of the breakdown in our societies and the breakdown in our family networks, because attunement is incredibly crucial. And then you would add maybe the environmental piece. We're living in a natural cinder block civilization where we don't have access anymore to the greenery and to nature. And we are strapped economically with having to work not only nine to five, but something more like realistically eight to seven these days. And and, and we are incredibly immersed in our digital uh, world and therefore the loss of the dignity of our own humanity, but also the interpersonal connections with other people. But then I would also add that trauma, one of the characterizing, um, distinguishing or defining uh, features of trauma is that it is, um, it is fragmenting. In other words, our psyche has fragmented. We have fragmented from each other. We have fragmented from our relationship with the planet. But then I would say that one of my central theses is the, the greatest, most pervasive fragmentation that we have experienced is a fragmentation from spirit. In other words, we are not just disconnected from our body and not just disconnected from each other and not just de 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 disconnected from uh, the, 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 the natural world but we are also disconnected from the unseen realm of spirit. And with that, our, our higher values and our higher principles and our higher as, highest aspiration and the fact that we are eternal, the fact that we are, uh, that, that there's such, such thing as a karmic residue to our consequences that we are responsible for uh, in perpetuity for, in, for infinity. And so those principles and the, that severing is, is I think the most fundamental separation from, all, from which all the others come. And so I'm in total agreement with you. And then, and then the real question is, is how, you know, so what do we do? How do we go about uh, healing it? And so one of the things that I've, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, uh, before you get into the how we, we deal with it, I, I've noticed uh, just a comment is how I, I believe a lot of people try to deal with it. 
and how a lot of people, like you mentioned substituting spirituality for actual, like sort of the real thing, you know, people sort of embrace it as a, as a thing, but not authentically, uh, you know, uh, sort of open that part of their life. But I also notice, um, a lot of people prey on this, on this, uh, you know, issue or experience that, you know, with these micro traumas and the buildup of the micro traumas. One example is, uh, like the church of Scientology. Uh, I've, I know some people who have been involved in that organization. And the more that I study what those people do is they essentially, uh, it seems like they understand the situation with the micro traumas and the way that they work those out of people is very interesting using an e-reader in this auditing, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with any of that stuff, but I, I could go into it deeper. Um, and then also just, you know, you can see the reflection of people's uh, sort of fragmented mental health uh, when they try to assign meaning to all sorts of things that are not uh, the important things, you know, or like rather than assign meaning to the relationships in their lives or to the people in their lives, uh, you know, they, they find, uh, a scapegoat or an alternative with, you know, putting symbols on their body, getting a ton of tattoos, uh, getting a pet that they, you know, embrace and put all their spiritual energy into. Like, I, I just know there's a lot of ways that people, uh, you know, do things that are a reflection that they're, they are mentally or spiritually fragmented. Yes, I, I agree. And I did watch the documentary on Scientology. I found it absolutely shocking. Um, um, and yes, I mean, I, I've grown less judgmental about all the ways that people are trying to escape because two reasons, oh. Uni universally, we are all in pain. Certainly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cast judgment on people who are experiencing this because I think it really is like the default state. Yeah, I think it, I agree. Yeah. It's the default state. And then I think some ways of coping are better than others. And I think people, people, certainly are do are sort of trying to do the best they can and they live in a very impoverished culture. I mean, ours is a very impoverished culture. We don't have a lot of answers. Uh, the main answer, I mean, just look at Bush at the time the world trade center happened, his main, you know, uh, healing of, for, for the, for the, for the nation was to go and shop, you know, just keep our economy buoyant. You know, there wasn't really a period of mourning. There wasn't a deeper recognition of the underlying causes. There wasn't, uh, you know, something spiritual really uh, in, the, in a time where the, you know, the, the country was sustaining its greatest capital T trauma. Uh, you know, there's basically keep the economy going and get back to business. And I think this is a very symptomatic and emblematic of just how impoverished our, our modern uh, consumeristic industrialized culture really is. And, uh, but, uh, but it doesn't do any good to blame the average person because, um, you know, what, what, what resources do they have at hand? Really, no one's really educating them about trauma and no one's providing any, any real tangible beneficial alternatives. And so, yes, I mean, so eventually we get to this question, what do we do? And, and you know, I think there are very, you know, people are people with the, the more trauma research is out there, the more that people will really have tangible and effective tools available to them and you know so i you know my two-year program contain comprises eight modules and each module is about six weeks and it started out as a way for people to study um you know indig indigenous spiritual culture from tibet but i found it 
I found that I wouldn't be doing my students and peers a, a service if I did not include in that program some uh, an entire module or two devoted to trauma and the shadow. Because I think if people are trying to gear up and tool up and learn something about the, their human mind and capability and potentiality and blind spots, then they should have the latest trauma that's available because it's really, really revealing. And so I thought, I feel very proud that in the first year, in the first four modules, someone would get some basic education about the, how the mind is working and based on a 2000 year old mind science perspective of Tibetan Buddhism, they, they are much more superior than we are in our own present day Western psychology. I mean, we our present psychology is probably 200 years old where theirs is 2,500 years old. So they have, they have 10 times the vast uh, uh, scientific rigor and acumen and collected knowledge about the nature of one psychology. And so uh, I think that that's, that's, it offers a much more sophisticated, incredible uh, infrastructure. And so, but, but once they get a first exposure to that, uh, then I went into the current uh, trauma right away. Module two was on trauma. And really empowering people, because I also don't think that the psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers and trauma workers should have privileged information. There's nothing special about us. We all went to school. We all took continuing education courses. We all learned the current science, and we also learned the current clinical skills that would help alleviate or reduce or heal. And I don't think someone has to get a PhD to learn that stuff. I think the public can be just empowered. In fact, if we're really going to make a difference in the context of the big uh, existential problem of the planet, I don't think that specialized, um, specialized training should exist in, in, in the hands of a few. I think very specialized training and uh, enhancements and education should, should exist in everybody. Everybody should have a piece of this. Everybody should have access to this. Um, because it's going to truly take everybody to take responsibility for their own mind and their own micro trauma, and then collectively helping each other work through their own trauma. And so I think it's our public duty or public service offering, a public initiative to make that information and those tools accessible. And so I feel pretty good that we delivered that upfront, you know, within, within the first two modules, someone sunk their teeth into Buddhist mind science and then went straight into the re recent trauma, uh, trauma therapy. That's uh, I love that. Uh, and so in, in addition to those treatments, do you, do you notice, uh, or have you noticed any other like trends or ways that people have been handling this trauma and helping others handle it? Um, I mean, I think, you know, there are a couple, couple hallmark features that, you know, if you looked closely, you could see that other people are doing similar things and that's why they worked. I mean, one, one of the, you know, first of all, you can define trauma and look at look look at where it's fragmenting. I mean, for for example, trauma is about separation or fragmentation, and so you have to know that in order to understand that what cures is bringing things together, bringing your mind and body together, bringing yourself and other people together, bringing yourself and other people and the planet together. So, if you understand that trauma is fragmenting, then you understand that trauma healing is about unifying or integrating. If you understand that trauma is relational, like micro traumas are, are most always relational. They have to do with the fact that someone broke your trust. They have to do with the fact that as, as social creatures, we need 
a lot of validation and attunement and presence and give and take in order to uh, develop our brains and to feel safe. And if we don't have that, if people's attunement break down, if, people's, if we don't feel safe, then we're never going to grow and we're constantly going to be in fight-flight reactivity and we're constantly going to be rocking the boat and making it difficult for others, even unintentionally. And so if you know that about the nature of trauma, then you understand that part of the trauma healing will be about uh, building safety in relationships. And then if you know that trauma inhabits or corrodes or embeds itself in your body, in other words, um, your body is the arena in which micro traumas build themselves in the same way that plaque buildup occurs directly in your arteries, then you understand that trauma healing will, necessi it will necessitate you being back in your body. And so if you understand those three features of trauma, then you understand what will heal. And what will heal, what we've reviewed is that it, trauma needs to be about integration, trauma needs to be relational, and trauma needs to be in the body. Then you start to see that ancient wisdom cultures understood this. You can go today where people are getting into communities. They feel safety and kinship and purpose and meaning. And that begins to start to heal them. And when you, you know, have periods of looking and examining closely breaches and trust and trying to mend them with people whom you have earned your respect over a long period. So that could happen with, uh, that could happen with therapists classically, but that, that doesn't have to exclusively happen with therapists. It can happen with teachers. It can happen with coaches. It can happen with in sports or music situations a creative uh, situations where you're working with somebody and you're starting to really sense that they're a trustworthy person. And then you start to express yourself with them and you feel heard and understood by them. And then there's something in that hearing and understanding that brings the fragmented parts out of the shadow and into the light so that they can be integrated. And then the final thing is uh, the, the frontier of the body. I mean, we have just had an explosion the last 20 years of yoga in the West um, but mostly as a kind of exercise yoga or gym yoga where people have an unfortunately, but maybe not so unfortunately, if you look at it in the big picture, have just sort of used it as a kind of calisthenics. But now I think we are seeing from the trauma world that that can be adapted very, very quickly. So thousands and millions of people in, 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 in America have, have enjoy yoga. Um, but and, and so it's just a very small step of education. We're talking probably a weekend workshop for those people who have already begun to understand the nuances of uh, and, and had the, ex the felt experience of being in their body. With, within a very profound one weekend workshop, you can already start to adapt those postures and, 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 and retroactively um, fuse in some of the trauma-related principles, and you can very, very easily, I think, start to have this massive impact on our culture. In other words, yoga, the last 20 years of yoga could be a major Trojan horse for a trauma healing revolution on this planet. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it's, I, again, I think it's like yoga goes, you know, hand in hand with some of these other uh, practices that, you know, even 
five, 10 years ago would have been seen as completely outrageous, like similar to the, you know, psychedelic treatments and things like that. Um, and I'm curious, you know, cause, cause some of your work has, has uh, focused on pilgrimage and I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on pilgrimage and how that relates to treating uh, trauma or, or what that experience can do for the psychology of someone. Patrick, I'm, I just want to say I'm enjoying this conversation tremendously. Thank you so much. I feel, I feel your authenticity and your engagement, and it's very inspiring. So I feel like the questions have really been, have really, really led to a kind of a bit nice kind of gestalt or big picture. I'm glad that you bring up pilgrimage now because on the face of it, people might be wondering like, okay, you've talked about ancient wisdom cultures. You've talked about the major, what I call the... Uh, the paradigm sickness. I didn't actually say it on this podcast, but the paradigm sickness was the central thesis of my book, Gradual Awakening, where you and I concur that if we look at our history, our near history as European modern industrialized civilization, we have lost touch with spirit. And as a result of lost touching with spirit, we have become fragmented from our bodies and societies and family systems and nature. And that though that creates a massive disruption in our psychic stability and our sense of purpose and meaning. And then that bleeds out into medical conditions as its most superficial manifestation or symptom. And we both agreed on that. And I was very happy about that agreement because it was, it was very reconfirming. But now you, on the face of it, you bring up, you know, pilgrimage and how does that fit in? And I've had to think about this because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 44 now. And when I was 20, I was, um, I was the product, I was very depressed and anxious most of my life. And I was raised in an environment where both my parents were staunch materialists. They had no religious or spiritual conviction and they liked entertaining and they, li they were very ambitious and career oriented and they were very materialistic in their yearnings and they liked to accrue wealth and have pleasurable experiences. And we had all of those and I feel very grateful about them. However, they didn't really feed some deeper existential yearnings I had at a very early age. I remember 13 and 14 going, you know, this isn't feeding me. And feeling very afraid and very ostracized and very alienated with my feelings. I didn't know how to make sense of them or place them. Well, by the time that I went to college, I was already well on my way of the last four or five years uh, into spiritual books and readings and meditations. And so by the time I was 20, I was ready to make a bigger leap back to India. And I left college for a semester. And while everybody else was enjoying their college semester abroad in Florence, studying architecture or, you know, going to London to study economics, I went to Northern India to a site at the time I couldn't really even find on an atlas. It was called Bodhgaya. Now, those of back in those days, we didn't have Google, uh, Google Earth, and I couldn't find this city on a on a uh, in in northern India, in on the atlas. And then yet I was going, and I was going there to study meditation and live with monks in a monastery. And don't ask me why. I just was following some very deeper what what now I understand as the hero's path, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. It had led me all the way to northern India to a to a small little city which I couldn't even find on a map, which is the equivalent in Buddhism to Mecca for a Muslim or in, the, in, the, in Islam. It is the pilgrimage center or the epicenter of Buddha, Buddhism because it is precisely there that the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama sat under the Bodhi tree and gained enlightenment. And I was there at 20 and it had a remarkable 
uh, a remarkable and indelible imprint on my mind. It was there and then that I discovered true spirituality and finally felt home after feeling like a scared, terrified, alienated, lost child for, for 20 years. I had finally found the place where I was surrounded by a culture that understood more than what was material and didn't just merely orient themselves to the accumulation of wealth and tangible uh, pleasurable experiences, but was oriented towards eternity and, 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 and uh, the non-material and to spiritual things and to generosity and to patience and to forbearance and to creativity and to uh, compassion and developing the mind and seeing the mind as an incredible asset in itself and orienting itself to the development of the mind inside rather than focusing on the acquisition of wealth outside. In other words, finding that everything that you have or need or ever wanted was within was a revolutionary discovery for me that has changed the entire impact of my life. And it happened in and around and amidst the very places where the Buddha 2,500 years ago sat and walked and preached and discovered and communicated. And so those sites are incredibly powerful. They are imbued with meaning. They are imbued with reverence. They have uh, seen over the centuries a slew, one after another, of sincere devotees who have come there and practiced meditation and, and learned sacred text and received initiations and vows and made commitments and pledges in an unbroken lineage 2,500 years old. So I see them as portals. If you ever wanted to connect to the Buddha, most materialistic person would say, oh, the Buddha 2,500 years ago, that dude is gone, move on. But no, the Buddha exists in our own hearts. And, you, and if you don't believe that, you, you, you know that you are a tuning fork. Human beings are sensitive. We're each like a tuning fork. And if you get near a particular kind of vibration, you can have that, uh, that vibration elicit an emotional reaction inside your body. I liken it also to the fact that right now in anybody's room, there is a current of electricity running through the wall. But it's not until you stick the power plug or the plug inside the... Uh, uh, you stick the cord or the plug into the um, uh, outlet that you pick up the current. And the same is true for power places of pilgrimage in sacred wisdom cultures. They are, this is where the outlet is or the uplink is. And so to put it back into the bigger picture of our conversation, I have viewed modern consumeristic, industrialized, nihilistic, and materialistic, exclusively materialistic culture as a very disenfranchised and disempowering and almost anorexic and ill, sick culture. And so part of the remedy is to help them find the plug and plug into the electric current so that they remember that inside of them there is already an active current, but maybe they only needed to, to remember that by way of going to a very powerful, prominent place. And then once they have that reminder, once they have that memory, once they have that actual visceral experience, then they can go home and remember that they can plug into communities or their meditation practice or sacred text and wherever they are, that amplification or that tuning fork effect within them can be rekindled. So I have made a pledge, you know, as of two or three years ago, I've made a pledge that part of my work and one arm of my um, offerings will include a, a pilgrimage every year. And it takes, me, it takes me about as long to write a book as it does to curate and prepare and execute a pilgrimage. And so, you know, three years ago, I went to India and I brought my own students to the sites of the Buddha's awakening. And that marked the 20-year anniversary 
since when I was there. I now was really, I was there 20 years earlier as a student, then 20 years forward, I was bringing my own students to that very site. The following year, we went to Nepal, to the Kathmandu Valley. This year, or just in 2019, we went to Sri Lanka. And then in August, I'm taking uh, a group to the high Himalayas, to Ladakh in northern India for another pilgrimage. And each and every time, one of the last things I'll just say is, I don't see myself as the teacher or the guru. What I like to do and what I see myself as is as a bridge or a ferry boatman. I like to bring people from our culture who are hungry and starving for some in-depth in knowledge that rekindles their sense of sacred and spirit. And, and I like to connect them with true masters and true living wisdom keepers of indigenous culture. So that is my role. That's my job. I'm just a, I'm just a ferry boat man. And, and I try to connect people who are earnest and sincere and willing to give up everything to go across the planet to meet these masters, get incredible blessings and have incredible ceremonies, but then to take responsibility that they have to keep that alive by way of their earnest practice and commitment to study and their ongoing development when they return. And so when they return, they plug into my, my two-year course so that there's, a, that's why I call it an ecosystem. Because if you see that human beings, they require so much learning. I mean, we're not one-trick ponies. We're complicated people. And, 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 and development takes time. I mean, growing takes time and, and healing takes time. So I would, treat, I would train people on the back end with classes. And then and I might meet with them individually for therapy to get custom-tailored private sessions. Then I would take them abroad in a two-week span to connect them with the masters, and we would have ceremonies, and we'd get these great blessings and these great downloads and uplinks. And then when we returned, we would plug back into the cohort, sharing our inspiration, sharing our learning with others, but also then feeling like we have a great galvanizing wave of energy together where we can continue to unfold our learning. That is, uh, that's really incredible. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, someone like you is out there doing that and, and connecting people with, uh, those, you know, like authentic masters and, and all that stuff. It's, it's truly amazing. Uh, where, where does someone find out more about, about your program? So my, my program is called the contemplative studies program and the website is the gradual path. So it's gradualpath.com. And there you see, you'll find the two-year program, which is online, and you can enter anytime from anywhere. And then, of course, over the, over the course of rolling out, so we are about halfway through, I'm teaching it live, and you can join us live stream or via Zoom or in person in New York City. But I have recognized that two years is a very daunting commitment for even people who are very sincere and earnest, sometimes two years. I mean, that's half the time of college. And so, so I feel very grateful that I'm attracting those kinds of people. I have, I, I would consider them more on the mature end. I mean, uh, not in terms of age, but in terms of kind of accrued life experience, they're mature and they understand that, you know, they've been around the block. They've already taken a course. They've taken, they may have gone on a meditation retreat. They probably read a lot of good books there. They don't need any convincing about the power of Buddhist psychology and meditation practices and yoga now they're re really ready to get stuck in and so that's usually the kind of person that i i attract but i've also noticed that two years is maybe a little daunting for for even 
for sincere people. So we cut the program up into modules and you can just purchase very, very um, inexpensively. You can just purchase one module and start and get a taste and, and just take one piece at a time. And then those that want to connect with my ecosystem and learn more about me, you could just head to milesneal.com, M-I-L-E-S-N for Nancy, E-A-L-E.com. I'm sure Patrick will leave the links up on his site. Uh, and there you'll find my therapy offerings, again, the program and the pilgrimages. Uh, that's, that's the full ecosystem of my offerings. It's great stuff. Uh, I hope everyone checks it out. Go and look at Miles' work. And I mean, I, I'm glad that you're you're focused in this area, and that someone like you with with the experience both in you know sort of modern psychology and uh, you know this connection to the ancient wisdom. I'm glad that there's someone like you out there, sort of bridging the gap between these two and introducing people, uh, you know, to both worlds. Uh, I think it's it's Thank a you, unique Patrick. time. I want to just say, I want to thank you for bringing me on. And I want to thank you also for doing what you do. Cause I know that nobody does anything worthwhile without sacrifice and without doubt and fear and confusion. And uh, I want to just recognize your effort. I, I feel like you have found your calling, even though I just met you, the fact that you're doing what you do means that you're doing it because you have found it to be a deeper meaning and deeper calling and deeper purpose and so I just want to end here um, by honoring that you have done that. And, and I'm sure your listeners feel that. And it comes through as a vibration that your authenticity and the fact that you derive tremendous meaning, that means that you have found your true north and you are aligned with your purpose. And, and so you can, you can endure any challenges, whether they be fear or finance or, or health or whatever, you can endure it because you have found your true purpose. And so I felt that on the call and I want to recognize that and thank you for that. And I, and I, want, to, I want to just acknowledge that I'm sure your listeners feel that and that's why they keep tuning in. And what you've done is a, you've made your life a great offering for others. And I want to thank you for that. Wow. Th thank you very much for that, those kind of words, Miles. I, I truly appreciate that. Thank you. Well, uh, again, please, everyone go check out your work. I know we're running over our time here. And, and before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to leave off with? Any other ask requests, words of wisdom or anything? It's been a real treat talking to you here. No, I just hope that I just, I want to read, just say one last thing is whoever's listening out there right now, you're not alone. We have to do it together. There's something very profound and powerful in each of us. And there couldn't be a more pressing time for each of us to dig deep and find it and share it with the world. So please find your outlet. Please find your beat, love your beat and share your beat. Uh, so that's the message. Fantastic. Thank you, Miles. Okay, Patrick. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. 
I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed, I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.